This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Armistead Maupin discusses his new book, Logical Family, a Memoir. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot digs into what a bestseller really is. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. There's not a lot happening in hardcover fiction this week. We've got a new number two, and uh, still we've still got John Grisham at number one, holding steady, sold 73,000 copies wow. this week. Not too bad for uh, second week sales. At number two is Michael Connolly with Two Kinds of Truth, the 22nd Harry Bosch thriller. And uh, Bosch is a LA detective who's uh, getting a little long in the tooth after 22 books. He's now a volunteer with the San Fernando PD, and he's squarely in the middle of two complicated cases. Uh, we say that this entry isn't Connolly's best, but it's still a solid police procedural that's sure to please his many fans. So uh, that's at number two. Uh, sold about 40,000 copies its first week out. Very respectable, especially for such a long-running series. Number four is Twin Peaks, The Final Dossier by Mark Frost. Uh, he's one of the co-creators of the Twin Peaks television show, and uh, he follows up 2016's The Secret History of Twin Peaks with another volume aimed at diehard fans. Uh, we say that uh, viewers of the Showtime episodes will get some clues about one of the most tantalizing plot threads that went unresolved, but Frost doesn't answer the biggest remaining questions. And so fans will hope for a season four and more revelations. And finally, down at number 15, In the Midst of Winter by Isabel Allende. Uh, no, no surprise that this is on the bestseller list. We gave it a star, said that grief and loss are transformed into a healing friendship in this fantastic novel about a 60-year-old scholar and his coworker and tenant, a 62-year-old professor, uh, both of whom are faced with a shocking dilemma when a young Guatemalan re refugee enters their lives. And the book is set uh, in Brooklyn and upstate New York, and uh, somehow things go downhill very quickly, and uh, soon there are bodies to dispose of and uh, a great deal of drama. We say that uh, the book is filled with Ayande's signature lyricism and ingenious plotting, and that it delves wonderfully into what it means to respect, protect, and love. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Well, it seems like in uh, fiction, the last couple of weeks, uh, it's been a little bit slow. Some some big names, but not many. Yeah. Uh, and nonfiction, meanwhile, continues to move along uh, with lots of new titles. So at number four, we've got Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit by Chris Matthews. Chris Matthews is the uh, uh, anchor of MSNBC's Hardball. Uh, he had written previously Jack Kennedy about President Kennedy, which was a best-selling book, New York Times bestseller, I believe. Uh, and this one follows on Bobby Kennedy. 
At number 12, we have the mask of masculinity, how men can embrace vulnerability, create strong relationships, and live their fullest lives by Lewis Howes. We say that Howes, who's a podcaster at the School of Greatness, uh, delivers a personal, thoughtful look at the effects of toxic masculinity on personal fulfillment and happiness in men. We say that Howes conveys genuine excitement about combating toxic masculinity and the personal value he's derived from researching and writing the book. And that's at number 12. Number 14, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter by Scott Adams, who's the uh, Dilbert cartoonist. And we stay here that with his usual adroit touch and sense of humor, he offers an enjoyable, provocative guide to the art of persuasion. Needless to say, Donald Trump is, is mentioned in this. So number 15, What Does This Button Do? An Autobiography by Bruce Dickinson, who is the lead singer for the heavy metal band Iron Maiden. Uh, number 17, we have Becoming Supernatural, How Common People Are Doing the Uncommon by Dr. Joseph Dispenza. This is the author of You Are Placebo, as well as Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. So it's another self-help book. And then, as we have had in the last few weeks, a cookbook. This one is Cooking at Home with Bridget and Julia, Julia Colin Davis and Bridget Lancaster. This is from America's Test Kitchen. They are the host of America's Test Kitchen TV show. And uh, here they offer, uh, they, they come with 150 recipes, are the author's favorites for entertaining family and friends, and are accompanied by charming anecdotes that let readers get to know the two authors and hosts better. So that's at number 18. Number 20, Live the Let Go Life, Breaking Free from Stress, Worry, and Anxiety, self-help book by Joseph Prince. And finally, well, that is it. That is it. That is the final book right there. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Armistead Maupin tells us about shifting from fiction to memoir. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Armistead Maupin on the line. His new book is Logical Family, a Memoir. Armistead, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you for inviting me. You're the author of the Tales of the City fiction series, some other novels and collections. What made you decide to write a memoir, and why now? Uh, Well, I'm 73 years old. That's a pretty good reason if you're going to do anything where you're talking about yourself. Um, And uh, I felt it was time to kind of explain how I got from there to here, as it were, because my past, my youth, indicated that I was headed anywhere but here. And I thought it might be interesting to tell that story. I know a lot of people that are are still trapped in the uh, conventions of the the South and a deeply conservative family, and uh, I wanted to show them the way out. So when you started, did you have an idea about the form this this memoir would take? I mean, uh, how how was it getting into your own story? You know, I was seated with uh, Patty Smith at a dinner a few years back, and she I had just read her wonderful memoir, Just Friends. And uh, by way of making conversation, I asked her if she had any tips for how to write a memoir. And she, she thought for a moment and then said, uh, don't put anything down unless you could picture the scene in the movie. Mm. And I thought that was just amazing advice uh, to to get the visual. You know, is there is there something of value here that would have power uh, on the screen? 
And so I went with that. I've always written my novels that way. And uh, this time around, I thought, well, all right, find the thread, find the story arc in your own story. Figure out what anecdotes you need to tell to support that. And go for it. And use all the same old techniques that I've used in Tales of the City for years of suspense and uh, humor and, you know, sometimes sadness all in the same soup. So take us back to your childhood in North Carolina, the this the youth that, uh, as you said, indicated that you were going anywhere but where you actually ended up. Right. Well, I was born to a, a in a family where our father was a, in some ways a very lovable, funny man, but he was also a raging white supremacist and uh, misogynist and homophobic and everything that white male Southerners have tended to be over the years. They're getting a lot better these days, but not back in the 1950s. And uh, I had to find my way through uh, with the support of certain people in my family, mostly old ladies, uh, who had kindness in their heart and understood uh, how I might succeed in the world as myself. My, my grand, my English grandmother, uh, who had been a suffragist back in England, uh, told me that she thought I was the reincarnation of her cousin Curtis, her bachelor cousin Curtis, <laughs> who, who was extremely artistic. <laughs> uh, she she kind of she knew who I was, in other words, and was sort of letting me know that that was going to be all right. And I've often thought about her over the years uh, because she showed me the way in a lot of ways. I wasn't getting it from anywhere else. I had a lovely mother. She was very kind and sweet. But she was always calming the waters, and my father was always ruffling them. Mm. And she barely had time to take care of herself in that process. And what was it like for you as a Southern boy becoming a Southern man um, growing up then? Uh, well, it, uh, first of all, I didn't get to act on any of my feelings because I knew when I was 13 that I was attracted to to other boys, to men. I saw my first piece of porn, or soft porn. It was I own a, own the magazine today, and it's really quite comically tame, but it was a sort of beefcake magazine that I spotted in a drugstore in Raleigh, and I just thought I was going to hell. As soon as I looked at it, I knew that guy on the cover was, wanted me and that I, he could have me if, he, <laughs> if we were in the same room together. But it, it was scary because... It, homosexuality was a crime and uh, a mental illness and a sin all at the same time. So you ended up in the Navy, which is almost a, a gay cliche. How, how did that happen and how did that go for you? Why is that a gay cliche? Uh, <laughs> to the village people? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that's, that's one of the ones that's, I, that's I lasted. I village people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if there are more gay people in the Navy, but they certainly have, it's more to appeal. I don't know. To my case, it was the chance to travel and see the world and the uniforms were a lot cooler. And, uh, it was known to not be as hard ass as other branches of the service. Maybe that's what you were saying. And how did, how did that go for you? Did it end up being an escape in, in the way that you were maybe looking for? Uh, well, I wasn't so much looking for an escape as I was looking for a way to please my father, to mm. be a military man, because he had said to me very early on, every generation of men in our family of men uh, has a war. 
and Vietnam was my war. That was very much his attitude. When the war came along, he was supposed to go to it. That's still the attitude of a lot of people in America, no matter how crappy the war. And uh, for me, it was kind of an adventure, to tell you the truth. I got to live in Charleston, South Carolina for a while in a little uh, carriage house, and uh, it, was a, it was a good change. And then I volunteered for Vietnam. That uh, was amazing in its own way. I wasn't in a combatant situation, but I was in this exotic foreign city, and later I served on the River Patrol Force, what they call the Brown Water Navy. Um, one of the things was being exposed to Agent Orange, which I just recently realized makes me eligible for my treatment for my diabetes. Uh, apparently, it's quite likely that a lot of Vietnam veterans who have diabetes nowadays uh, were exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam in the 1970s. I was very much exposed to it. Several of my friends uh, subsequently died of it. And uh, so that part of the war is coming back to me all these years later in my 70s. Wow. And after the Navy, uh, you you found your way to San Francisco. Um Tell us about San Francisco at the time when, when you went there. And what was the calling uh, to you from San Francisco? Well, I got a job. I got a journalistic job with the AP, the Associated Press, uh, said we have an opening in the San Francisco Bureau. And uh, so I packed everything into my little Opal GT. It drove across the country. I remember a gay man in Charleston where I was living telling me that I would love it there because they had 50 gay bars. Hmm. And I told him rather primly, uh, oh, I would never go into one of those. Uh, and I went into one of those the very first night I was in town. You know, <laughs> I, I saw what was happening around me, uh, and uh, it was amazing. And the most amazing thing of all was that the straight folks in San Francisco were far more comfortable with my homosexuality than I was. Uh, a straight woman friend of mine basically said, big effing deal. Uh, when I told her I was gay, she said, half the town is, what's your problem? Hmm. Uh, and, uh, it sort of opened up my attitude about myself. I started coming out to everyone, strangers, cab drivers, you name it. <laughs> uh, I was so exhilarated by the fact that I had this benign piece of information about myself because I had lived in a place for many years where it was anything but benign, where you could get killed for it. In Tales of the City, one character tells another right at right at the beginning uh, that San Francisco loosens people up. Was it was it that way for you? Oh yes, totally. Uh, and I let myself go with it. I remember, you know, I went home one time with a guy from the park, and his boyfriend came came back early. Didn't know he had a boyfriend, by the way. I wasn't that bad a person, but the boyfriend came back early and chased me out of the house, screaming "slut" as he threw my clothes at me. <laughs> and I just thought it was funny because I realized, by, in, in, according to you know the way I lived before, I was a slut. I mean, I had not been to bed with anybody until I was 25, uh, male or female, and I was ready to dance, you know. So describe to us San Francisco at the time. Tell us the year. It was 1971. Uh, the Summer of Love had sort of deteriorated, but uh, it left a whole lot of uh, liberated folks in town. Uh, 
there were a, whole, a lot of gay people there. Some of most of the blood of them living around the Polk Street district where I lived, but they were moving into the Castro as well. Uh, Harvey Milk was like four years away from running for supervisor of, of the city. Um, uh, it was heaven. You could just, and there were bathhouses everywhere where you could go and have an evening's recreation with, with other people, many of whom were just like me. Uh, and this, we could tell our stories to each other. And I heard, I began to think about what a wonderful story you could write about a city where all these possibilities occurred, you know, uh, among people both straight and gay. It's a very small place, 750,000. So you could bump into people all the time. And there was a, a, a growing transgender presence, and I was observing that, and I was realizing I could introduce a transgender character, which I did in the form of the landlady at 28 Barbary Lane, Mrs. Madrigal. And uh, she has since been sort of recognized as the first sympathetic uh, transgender character in fiction. I'm proud of all that. I guess you can tell I am. And that I was... Uh, Introducing gay life to the world in, in a way that was just as benign and glorious as it felt to me as I was experiencing it. It wasn't the terrible, scary thing I'd always been warned about. It was something really quite lovely. Does Mrs. Madrigal draw somewhat on those older women who helped you when no one else would? She seems like that kind of well, character. Yeah, there, well, the, um, one of the mysteries of of the memoir, and, and as I say, I tried to keep some mysteries in it, uh, just the way I did with my fiction, is that who, uh, what person inspired her the most? There were a number over the years that I, um, uh, folks that I met in both Charleston and in in San Francisco, uh, including a uh, including a hairdresser on Union Street who threw a big party to pay for her uh, operation, for her for her transition. And uh, she invited the Benny Goodman Orchestra, or what was left of it, and Sally Rand, the old fan dancer who was 70 years old and still dancing. Um, and she called it, because it was to pay for her surgery, she called it the ball to end all balls. <laughs> and I, I thought... I thought if she can have that big a sense of humor about it, this has got to be a fun evening. So I went and I covered it. And I actually went to lunch with her, uh, Kate Marlowe, her name was, uh, and Sally Rand the next day. Uh, that was the day that Sally turned 70. So I was finding in San Francisco a place that was rich in uh, details and in, in wonderful anecdotes and Traditions of free thinking and uh, a lot of the things that don't really people wish they still existed here, but they we're so overwhelmed by the tech presence. There's not a whole lot of free thinking going on. They're just giant corporations that are dressing up uh, for Burning Man and pretending that they are <laughs> Bohemians, but not really doing a good job of it in the end. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Armistead Maupin, author of Logical Family. So tell us about uh, these biological and logical families of the title. Well, I coined that phrase, logical family, about 10 years ago for a novel called uh, Michael Tolliver Lives. It was one of the tales of the city novels. And Mrs. Madrigal, the aforementioned landlady, was is in a moment where she's comforting Michael about his extremely bigoted family back in Orlando. And she says, well, my dear, you have your biological family, but then you also have your logical family, reminding him that he has formed a family of, of friends and lovers and uh, kindred spirits uh, that really end up being the ones who support him in life. I think a lot of us, gay or straight, realize that reality. That uh, sharing the same blood with another person doesn't mean that you that they're coming along with you on the ride. Uh, and the ones that do are, are the ones that form our logical family. We refer in our review of your book uh, about how tenderly yet honestly you describe your biological family, or actually both families, in 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 ways you play them against each other, or at least play them off each other. How do you do that? How did you approach that? Well, I I think the reality for a lot of gay people, uh, the ones that I know who've done it right, we grow up with a lot more compassion and understanding than than our hetero uh, counterparts because we can imagine the world. You can imagine everyone's circumstance. I can be sympathetic to the ignorance of my parents because I know the world that they grew up in doesn't mean I have to tolerate it or even stick around, but uh, I know where their mindset came from. And I guess to a certain degree, those probably those episodes that touched you are ones that I myself clung to because I needed some proof that they could see my own humanity and want me to achieve my own happiness. So in their own way, both my mother and my father had something to say to me at the very end of their lives that gave me, uh, that brought me joy uh, in, insofar as I realized that they wanted me to find love in exactly the way I wanted to find it. And that's really all we want to hear, any of us. I won't tell you what those moments were because I want <laughs> your other folks to read the book. No, 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 no spoilers. Uh, uh, no spoilers in my life. <laughs> I was talking with a friend last night about how uh, saying that somebody is family to mean that somebody is gay uh, is, or is, is part of the sort of extended queer community now feels very old-fashioned to me. And uh, realizing that the concept of queer found family has really changed over the years and over recent years. Is that something that you've also seen? Yeah, when the word family should not be used as code, that, that's, that, I agree with you. It does sound old-fashioned. It's like, well, you know, they're family. Right. Uh, it's like the old, it's like the old uh, he's a friend of Dorothy. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, by the way, if I can wander off. Absolutely. Here, um, that term that I always grew up thinking had something to do with uh, Judy Garland and the Wizard of Oz, had nothing to do with that. It was a code word used in the British theater years before The Wizard of Oz was made or Judy Garland came on the scene where someone wanted to get a free ticket to a play 
And if they were in the business, if they were actors themselves, they can they could go and say, this is for a friend of Dorothy, and that's how you put your ticket aside. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> that's where that came from, said Uncle Armistead. Um, <laughs> I get anecdotal in my old age. I'm very sorry. Um, Anecdotes are fun. But I, I agree. I don't, like, I don't like the code language. I don't like the whispering. Uh, a whole lot of people showed up at my signing in Raleigh, in my hometown, for this memoir, uh, who surprised me, including my brother and uh, uh, his wife. Uh, I don't know whether they were just curious if I was going to say something that they felt they should not hear later on, but um, they they came. One of the people who came was the daughter of Jesse Helms, who, as you know from my memoir, was part of my life early on and then came back to attack me when Tales of the City was on PBS. And and so we became very vocal adversaries. His daughter came to the to the event, and, and I said, uh, oh, I understand you have, you have a daughter yourself and that she's married, uh, has a wife. And there was a brief silence, and then she said, well, yes, she's... Oh, and I, I laughed. I said, "You know, you really don't have to whisper that word around me. You really don't." Say they have, uh, the habits die hard there in the south. You know, the shame lingers and lingers, and it's very tiresome. Well, I did want to ask you what L- L- Raleigh is like now. I mean, you you knew Jesse Helms uh, um, when you were younger, and then coming back, and I know the Raleigh-Durham area, area is now a lot of uh, transplanted Yankees, and the town of uh, uh, um, Cary is known as containment area for relocated Yankees. Um, what is the South like now? Uh, I mean, it's a much different place from what you grew up. Is it? Is it more? Yes, it is. is but it still has a legislature that votes for horrendous things. The Republicans completely control the government there, uh, and uh, you know, hammered home those trans anti-trans uh, bathroom laws as long as they could. Uh, until ball teams started telling them to behave like civilized grown-ups by refusing to show up until they got rid of the law. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wicked backward thinking that still comes into play there. And a lot of really nice people. 200 of them showed up at my book signing and I was delighted to see them. Yankees too, I'm sure. There must have been some Yankees in the room. <laughs> some Yankees from Cary. A few wandering in, looking lost. Yeah. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> So American culture and uh, particularly Southern culture isn't very supportive of men writing about love, uh, familial love, especially queer love. How did you push back against that, both with your novels and with your memoir? Well, the the as, as far as the novels were concerned, they began as a newspaper serial in San Francisco. So I I crept in in a very populist way. I was telling a story that people got involved in, and some of those people were gay and lesbian and trans. And uh, and people came to love them and want and they were curious about, about what was going to happen to them next. So uh, that's how I did it 40 years ago. And uh, the novels had a similar effect uh, when they spread across the country and then around the world. Uh, they humanized uh, a community that had only been demonized in the past. 
I wasn't the only person doing this. There were other uh, LGBT writers um, who were doing the same thing. But it it did come from writers, I have to say, in the early days. We Nowadays, when we have a gay celebrity, they tend to be a, a singer or an actor who's come out. Back then, it was only the writers who were, who were speaking out in that way. And I'm proud to have been part of that cultural revolution. Did you feel like you were getting a lot of support from the community around you? Did you have a community of writers that you were part of? Uh, I have never, maybe it's just me, but I've never particularly, I've always thought of writing as being a very singular experience. And writers' conferences are as deadly as any organization you could possibly attend because they're filled with dangling nerve ends and unfulfilled ambitions and overfulfilled ambitions and uh, it's not an easy place to be. I hate to say this to Publishers Weekly, but it's the truth. Many, <laughs> many of us. I, I got together with a whole bunch of uh, writers in in San Francisco some years back, and I'd never seen so many in the same room. And it was because Salman Rushdie was coming to town, and the fatwa was still on his head, and everybody was curious about this man's situation. So there was this wild array of people who'd come out of their little writing holes to. Uh, to meet the man. And, uh, but normally we would not have been hanging out with each other. I know there, there, you know, uh, there's the grotto here. Uh, you know, there are writing groups, but I don't, you know, I don't think you have to really sit around and be supportive of other writers in the sense that you need that creatively. You just have to get out and tell your damn story. You know, you have to, Say what's on your mind and make it as clear as possible. Sometimes you may need support from somebody like Penn, which is a wonderful, valid organization that protects writers who are jailed and that sort of thing. But uh, for the most part, I don't think in terms of uh, of community in that way. Terrible thing to admit that you're an individualist when you're a writer, but I am. <laughs> I think a lot of writers feel the same way. There are definitely, yeah, good. definitely some people who, who need the community and other people who are just like, going to stay in my room and I don't want to talk to anybody. Yeah, well, it's funny. I'm not quite that person because I hate, this, I hate the loneliness of the process. I do have to get out and be with friends, but they don't have to be writers. Mine tend to be actors, interestingly enough, because I have over the years learned how to sort of play off actors. You can sort of, if you're a writer, you can kind of feed them material for conversation, and it's very satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe because I was in love with movie stars when I was growing up, you know, that I actually grew up and met some people who were movie stars. It was the greatest honor in the world, and to find out that they were human uh, and that they were happy for you to treat them as such uh, was was a great discovery. What was your PBS experience like, taking taking these books that had started very much, as you said, as newspaper serials in the in the written form, and then turning them into something totally different? Well, you know, it was Channel Four in Britain that originally took on this project, mm. Working Title Films, who I'm still with, and Channel Four uh, with the with the with people that said we want to do this and we want to do it exactly the way you wrote it. PBS came on kind of late with, um, what was it called? Uh, American Playhouse put some money towards it, uh, and therefore acquired it for, um, for PBS. 
I've often sort of jokingly made reference to the PBS meaning Pilford British British series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so much of that content comes from from the UK, and that was true of Tales of the City. It was a UK project. Uh, however, after it won the best ratings that PBS had ever run, won in the states for a drama series, second only to uh, I think Upstairs Downstairs, there was a huge outcry from the American Family Association and the other members of the Christian right who were just beginning their culture wars. And they threatened uh, Congress with uh, shutting off funds to PBS if if they didn't disavow Tales of the City. So the second series, there are, after all, nine novels in the series. The second series was uh, instantly rejected by PBS. They made a lot of lame excuses for why they were doing it, but the truth was they were running scared from losing their money. Mm. Uh, they have, however, accepted, uh, invited us to screen a documentary that was made on me this year called The Untold Tales of Armistead Maupin that's going to be on uh, PBS on uh, New Year's Day. And the, the documentary sort of holds them to task for their, for their squeamishness about continuing the tales, but they seem to be willing to own that these days because they did, after all, put it on in the first place. What is the one thing that surprised you most about writing a memoir uh, rather than fiction? Um, well, I don't know. If it's, I don't think anything really surprised me about it. Uh, I was a little more self-conscious, obviously, because when you're writing a memoir, you're, you're wondering what effect you're making. If you're coming off as too grand or too self-effacing or too anything. Uh, I just tried to put down the first thing that came to mind. I figured that would be as truthful as my experience as anything that I could do. Um, But nothing really threw me off balance because I've always been uh, someone who anecdotalizes his own life. Uh, it was inevitable that I actually sit down and write a memoir because I had been telling a lot of these stories for years and years and years, and people would always say, oh, my God, you've got to put that down somewhere. So I did, for better or worse. And if someone sat down next to you like you sat down next to Patti Smith and said, what's your advice for a memoir writer? What would you say beyond passing on her excellent advice? Uh don't be afraid. Your 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 most uh, unattractive moments are probably the most interesting to your readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I there are three or four sex scenes in this book, not graphic really, although I hope that I'm clever enough to let people take their own minds where I went. Uh, but they are all failed sex scenes. They're all moments where I didn't quite live up to what I should have lived up to. Sometimes in a quite literal sense, uh, other times just uh, where I was emotionally. And I think that's much more interesting uh, to the reader than, um, you know, a perfect sex scene. You write a perfect sex scene, you're writing porn, and people can't identify with it, if you follow me. We've been talking with Armistead Maupin, and you can find his book, Logical Family, in stores right now. Armistead, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about what makes a bestseller. Stay tuned. I'm John McGregor, author of Reservoir 13, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Millett is here to tell us all about bestseller lists and how they work. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. So, this is this has been a long, a big mystery for a long time. <laughs> uh, everyone wonders how, uh, well, we, we used to get numbers. It, it's apparent now how we do, how the New York Times does it. How do bestseller lists work? Yeah, well, Mark, yeah, it's... Um what we're really exploring here is, as we said in the head- headline, does anybody know what a bestseller is? Because there's been such a proliferation of, uh, of lists that nobody can really settle on, you know, what is a bestseller? Does bestseller status have the same cachet? Do readers care about what a bestseller is? Because, I mean, there are, so many ways books can reach bestseller list now. And there's been stories that, you know, some people in the audience may have heard about how uh, some guy took a picture of his foot and made it into a book and he put it on Amazon <laughs> and he manipulated Amazon's list and he got into one of their category lists that says it was number three on their whatever On their foot pictures. On their foot pictures. <laughs> right. So is that a bestseller? Right. I mean, if you're – you could – say it is a bestseller, but that's not what bestsellers three, four years ago really meant. Right. Even though there was not a general consensus. I mean, the Times, we know, um, is what most people look to as as the standard. But um, I think we may have even talked about this before on the show. No one really knows how they compile their list. Right. Um, you know, they have some secret sauce, and uh, you know, they maintain that they... Um, they need to do that to avoid people and authors or publishers from trying to game their list. Um, but that leads to a, you know, a glaring lack of transparency. And so you don't really know what they're measuring. And plus, they do say they have ebooks. Not, nobody's really sure where they're getting their ebook data from. Knowing Amazon, I highly doubt Amazon is giving them access to, uh, to all their ebook numbers. So what it, what it relates to is, you know, sort of a mishmash of people calling their books a bestseller. And it's led to some frustration, you know, among people in the industry, just wondering about, again, does just saying, saying this book is a bestseller have any cachet, have any meaning to the readers nowadays? You had mentioned uh, in, in the article, at least the article had mentioned, uh, you quoted Paul Bogards uh, from Knopf saying, you know, no one media outlet or magazine has the same weight that they used to, even right, the New York right, Times. Right. So what is the importance nowadays of it? Well, of the Times? No, uh, of just of, bestseller lists. Well, yeah. that's, again, I mean, and, and a couple other people pointed out, um, and this is what really actually one reason we looked into it is because we have been hearing from people within the industry that there is no real national list um, that can really tell you definitively, like, supposedly you really know what the number one movie was of the week because they have some numbers that nobody really disputes. Right. Um, but because 
all these bestseller lists have all these gaps in them, like the PW list, for instance. Now, look, we were very transparent. We were powered by BookScan, which gets print sales from about 80 to 85% of all outlets. But their, you know, huge Achilles heel, which in turn then is ours, is, uh, we don't get ebook sales because mm. Amazon, you know, doesn't, you know, won't give, won't share their ebook sales data with them. Right. So we have, I can, I would, say without hesitation that, you know, the books we rank that are, um, if you look at an overall list, the top 10 lists in print, those are the best-selling top 10 books of that of that uh, week. Um, but ebooks adds this whole other equation, again, because there's really, um, there's no one place where it applies to data. And, you know, a lot of this does fall, like so many things in publishing, in Amazon's lap. I mean, as somebody pointed out in the story, and this is one of the things I was thinking about myself, it's that, all right, so if you hit the Amazon ebook list for, it's real time, we all know that, right? So if you hit it for half an hour and you're in the top 10 somewhere, or the top 20 somewhere, and then you're gone and never seen again, could you call that a bestseller? I mean, you could, right? but again, I mean, what makes a bestseller actually meaningful? And it's very difficult to compare a real-time list like that to a weekly list like ours or The Times or USA Today. It's it's very – even a daily list, you know, even if a bestseller list were updated at once every 24 hours, it's a huge difference from every half an hour. Right. No, no, absolutely. And actually – you know, Amazon now has their own list, which they call Amazon Charts, which I think we may have talked about when they launched that, uh, I think, in the spring. And I have been talking to them about some sort of list. And I said, well, you know, do you have a weekly list? And he said, no, we don't, <laughs> because they had they were so into doing the real-time sales tracking that they never – thought about or nobody paid attention to, you know, putting a, a period at the end of the week and saying, oh, here are our best books for the year. I mean, they can, they will do it for six months. They do it right. for a longer period of time. But for whatever reason, they hadn't done it for a week. And, well, now they do. But again, I mean, they're measuring pretty much stuff that Amazon stuff. And, you know, and KDP, which is their self-publishing program for ebooks, you know, they don't report any of their sales to anybody. So it's, you know, from a lot of vantage points, it's, it, it, it is very frustrating. I and mean, like, what is a bestseller? And in terms of what is sales, I got a call from Amazon a few weeks ago complaining about the narrative that ebook sales are declining. And but if they won't send us numbers, well, how I, would we know? The person who called me was very sympathetic to our position. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> there is one reason. She said, I know, I know, I know. But, I mean, I think they're thinking about ways to actually try to counter that narrative without disclosing actually hard numbers. So right. we'll see if they come up with anything. But again, it, it's the same issue then that why is there no definitive bestseller list? Well, one of the, you know, the biggest seller of ebooks really won't share all their data with us. And so why is that important? Well, uh, we talked to uh, one of the agents there mentioned, they think bestseller lists do carry some weight as long as there is um, some attribution. Like, if it does say this is was a New York Times bestseller or even a PW bestseller or USA Today bestseller, uh, she thinks that does carry a little bit of, a bit of weight. But if it just says this book is a bestseller, 
Um, her feeling is readers look at it a little bit skeptical, right. shall we say. Right. And uh, you mentioned Paul Bogors from Kanaf, uh, you know, and he brought up, well, you know, the Times list is probably not what it once was, but, you know, Every publisher will festoon a cover of its co- of its book that has been a New York Times bestseller list with this is a New York Times bestseller. Right. So obviously, um, you know, it's a way to help it stand out in the marketplace. You know, and um, Skyhorse's Bill Wolfshell, who's the their publisher over there, he has this great quote. He says, "Every publisher must make a decision on when to refer to a book as a bestseller." Was it a bestseller on Amazon for a day? Is it a bestseller if it makes a bestseller list for independent bookstores? And his point is, you know, the publisher has, you don't want to trick the reader in, you know, to inferring it's some sort of blockbuster bestseller. But on the other hand, as we just said, you know, you're looking for a way to try to make the book, you know, jump out a little bit. That makes a lot of sense. So where do you see this going in the future? I don't think there's really going to be much resolution. I mean, the ironic part is, um, you know, the Times, and I think we may have covered this, you know, a few months ago, they dropped the mass market paperback bestseller list, and they dropped the graphic novels, and they may have dropped a couple other category category lists. All all of my romance writer friends were incredibly upset, because they do see that designation of New York Times bestseller as a big marketing tool that's now been taken away. Right, exactly. And that's one of the points. And I was like, well, you know, as as annoying as they may get about the Times' criteria or whatever, it's nice to have something to put on to put on the on the cover, especially in huge categories like romance, I mean it's right, a very right. big field. It's really important that you have something that helps you stand out. Yeah, and, and you know in that regard, I mean we had talked to the Romance Writers Association about using the PW mass market paperback list, and I guess they already sort of use it. Mm. So um, you know, it's an interesting question whether there'll ever be a real resolution. Yeah, I don't know, but it, it's I think it's good to get the conversation going and to make. You know, I don't know if we'll make how many consumers aware, but, you know, the industry should, should at least examine what um, what their standards might be. I mean, no, we're not, you know, we're not going to say, you know, the only thing that you can say is a bestseller if it's been, if it's been on the New York Times for a week or right. PW for a week or whatever. I mean, I'm sure people who have Amazon ebook bestsellers for uh, a day... You know, don't want to. But that's, and I don't want to impugn self publishers. I mean, more self publishers likely do that. I, I don't know if Random House would say this book, you know, was on Amazon. Right. But they, they, won't, they might not have to do that because they're Random House. But if you're, you know, Jane Smith and this is the book you spent your whole life writing and somehow you got it to number 10 on some that's Amazon big, list, yeah. hey, I, I do it. Yeah, exactly. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Do you think we might see more people leaning on reviews? I know that I've seen that um, in in a lot of marketing, not just this got a star from PW or Library Journal or Booklist, but uh, this got this has like an average of five stars, right, right, uh, right. or an average of you know four point eight stars or whatever it is on Amazon or Goodreads. Do you think that that might take the place of bestseller numbers since it's uh, data yeah. anyone can reach? Yeah, I, I think to some degree will, but you know people like sort of numbers. This was number two on the bestseller list. And we actually did talk to five or six booksellers about what their reaction was. And they were like, well, 
you know, people look at the bestseller list, whether, you know, they sure they have some in their stores, probably an, an indie list. Well, I think, you know, the, ind the independent booksellers have their own list. Right. So they, they have it there maybe to try to reinforce, you know, the idea that this book might be good for you. It is on our list here. But they, they were also a little bit skeptical about how much bestsellers actually prompt readers to buy books. And to your point, Rose, they said they think reviews are actually more important. Mm. So... If you want to take the time to read the review, even if it's a blurb, uh, you might be better off than just saying, hey, this book was on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Jim, and uh, raising a question that sounds like doesn't really have an answer. Well, you know, so many questions do or don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jim. Thank Thanks, you, Rose. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 